You're listening to The First Question with Paul Hendrick, brought to you by Ballistic Sports. Follow Ballistic Sports on Twitter at Ballistic Sports. Growing up as a hockey fan, and in particular, a Maple Leaf fan, I certainly knew who Mark Curtin was. He was a junior star in Peterborough, a third-round pick by Toronto in 1978, and an athlete who would go on to play for the Leafs, Red Wings, and Canucks in a pro career that spanned 11 years. Mark would then transition from hockey to an incredibly successful career in real estate sales in Oakville, Ontario. But as great as life was, it was about to change drastically. In 2018, Mark was diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Three years on, Mark's quest to battle this disorder is as fierce as his competitive nature as a player ever was, likely more so. And to quote Mark, I'm not dying with ALS, I'm living with ALS. In the summer of 2014, Kurtz, we were all captivated by the bucket challenge, the opportunity then to raise awareness dominated social media. But I'm not sure most of us had really any idea what Lou Gehrig's disease was all about. What exactly is ALS? Do you know what, Henny? To be honest with you, before I got it, I didn't know either. And I actually kind of lumped it in with MS and and the rest of the neurological problems. And uh, so I had no idea either. And uh, when I first, uh, and we'll get into this later, but when I first felt the symptoms, and we started doing all the testings. I learned as I went along the process as to what it was, but it is so complex. And there's two kinds of, of ALS as well. As a matter of fact, you pronounced it very well because I to this day can't pronounce the words in ALS. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you that uh, Chris Snow, uh, the assistant GM of Calgary, he has a genetic form of ALS, which only about four or 5% do have. I have the sporadic, and the sporadic, uh, uh, it, 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 it hits the body the same way, but in some ways it's different as to how they're looking for a cure. Now, what happens basically in a nutshell is this illness and disease attacks my motor neurons. And as it attacks my motor neurons, uh, the neurons die over time, which um, uh, creates gradual muscle uh, loss, Uh, speech, swallowing, breathing, and eventually you become paralyzed. Now, it affects everybody differently. Um, You know, they they always, it's, it's, you know, I read two to five year uh, timeline and lifeline on this, but you know what? There's people that are around 10, 12 years. So it affects everybody different. I'm hoping that uh, with the treatments I'm on, that it it slowed it down a little bit so it stays out of my front where the real problems can start. I mentioned uh, in the introduction, Kurtz, you were diagnosed in 2018, but when did you initially realize that something wasn't quite right? You know what, I was down in, uh, we were down in Bahamas on vacation, uh, Lisa, Sarah and I, and I remember lying on the beach and my right bicep wouldn't stop twitching. And you know, all of us after a a workout or uh, what have you, you know, the muscles twitch a little bit, or your eyelid may twitch or whatever. But this bicep was really going and it wouldn't stop. And it was so crazy because I was, uh, I remember reading Bob McKenzie's book 
And I was reading the chapter on Coley Campbell, who I know so well from Peterborough. And, um, you know, I was reading about how he almost died on his farm uh, where his uh, tractor went went into the water and broke the ice. And so I phoned him and we were talking about my arm. He says, oh, you better get that checked. You better get it checked. So when I got back home, I started all the testing. And then I tripped a few times, Henny. Like I remember... I remember running from a restaurant to my car uh, because I was late for a real estate appointment and I tripped on the curb and I fell into my Mercedes and put a huge dent into the driver door. And I thought that was strange, you know, because I like to have thought that I was always very coordinated and that would never happen. And then I was and then I was golfing and my club slipped out of my hand when I swung because my right hand was weaker. And so what happened in a nutshell, it went from my right arm to my left arm, to my left leg, to my right leg. And it was like a clock. And, and I always thought it was a pinched nerve that was causing this. And then we went tested for Lyme and we tested for the pinched nerve and went to rheumatologists and we went everywhere. And, and you know, when they say you're officially diagnosed, when the doctor tells you, the, you know, the question I ask is that I could have been diagnosed maybe six months earlier, who knows, but they weren't sure. It's one of the toughest illnesses to diagnose because it mimics Lyme. Mm-hmm. It really does. And, and Lyme disease, I had a positive uh, test result out of California and uh, it turned out obviously not to be Lyme, but it gave us false hope. But I, and I remember lifting dumbbells, like just a bar handy, and the bar would fall right out of my right hand onto the floor. It was just bizarre. It was bizarre. So you and Lisa, 2018, you're at Sunnybrook Hospital, and, and you get the devastating news. How did you deal with that initially? Uh, it was very surreal because we, um, two of us went in with hope, and then, you know, he comes in, and, and I'll tell you, he didn't, uh, uh, you know, he just came right out and said, this is what you've got. You've got ALS. If you want a second opinion, you can go for it. But I'm the leading doctor in Canada, and this is what I have. So, you know what? It, uh, you know, the first thing that popped into my head was, how do we tell the kids, right? I, you know, that's a tough one. Um, but you know what? And, and of course, you know, Lisa was very, very upset in the room. And, and uh, you know, he's, he's saying, look, at two to five years. But he said, you know what? He said, there's people that go a lot longer than that. So mm-hmm. I, I, guess, I guess what happened with me is when I got out of there, you know, and I had some time to reflect. I said, you know what? I get two choices here. I can go down. I can be depressed, negative, what have you. Or I can eliminate all the negativity from my DNA and be positive, help others, use my platform uh, as best I can to get the awareness out there. And I just felt that if I'm up and I'm upbeat around my family, they'll be upbeat. Mm -hmm. If I'm down, they're down. So those are the kind of the, uh, um, you know, what I did as far as myself, getting myself mentally uh, strong to, to do this battle. Um, but you know, telling the kids was tough. And, uh, you know, the the thing is, Henny, when you have this 
um, really your caregivers around you, they're, they really have it too, if that makes any sense. Well, it impacts because the they, whole family, right? Oh, yeah. They live with day in and day out and day in and day out and, uh, you know, and what have you. But, but I'll tell you, I have had so many uh, crazy stories. And uh, the one that I'll share that um, was, was bizarre was the last house I, I showed um, just down the road. Uh, you know, everything, my both arms were weaker, my grip was weaker, my left leg was weaker, and I started going up the stairs, and I, I got up to the 14th riser, and my client was out the backyard, and I was coming up from the basement, so I, for some reason, I put my left foot forward instead of my right, and I started to tilt, and I was going back, and I grabbed the railing, couldn't grab it, I thought, what am I going to do now, so I put my I put my arms over my head. I swear I rolled down like a 10 pin bowling ball down the stairs and boom, boom. I hit, I scraped the top of my head. That's where yeah. I was bald. And then I landed on the bottom, like in a fetal position. And I opened my eyes and I thought, geez, am I still alive? And I looked around and then I started wiggling my toes, my hands. And somehow I got up and I crawled back to the stairs, got up on my feet and went back up the stairs again. And, and you know what? When I got home for about five days, I couldn't move. It was like my ribs were broken. It was like the Broad Street bullies all hit me at once in 79. So, so I, I looked at that and I said to my wife, I said, somebody wants to keep me around, right? Because how do you live through something like that without even a broken bone? But Mark- so I, that, that made me think. And, and Chico Resch was so funny because... Chico says to me, uh, the old goaltender, um, he said he would send me his hockey helmet so that if I fell again, he would, uh, I, it wouldn't matter which way I fell, my head would be protected. So we had a giggle about that. Once an athlete, always an athlete, and the influx, a reflex and instinct to do what you did. But you've got Doug Gilmore's helmet. I've read that somewhere, don't yeah. you? Well, yeah, I have. Gilly gave me that back in uh, 91 or 92. And uh, we had a rule in the house because the only other fall I had, uh, Henny was in the house here and I was trying to turn the uh, TV off my foot and my leg. When you fall with this, it's like an accordion, like your knees just give out and down you go. You have no way of stopping. And I'm lying there and my wife and daughter came racing down. And that was a that was a tough emotional moment because I knew I couldn't get up and they looked at me and, and they were kind of looking, how can this NHL guy that had the strongest legs, you know, yeah. in, in the world, how can he not get up? But, you know, that was a tough look for me to look at their faces. But at the end of the day, you know what? I got help to get up and away I went. And uh, from that point on, the new rule was after 11 PM, I had to wear a hockey helmet. So that's why I put Gilmore's on. But, but you know what? I called Gabby Boudreaux and I said, I want one of those gold ones from uh, Vegas. <laughs> uh, uh, so anyway, it's crazy, crazy stories, emotional stories. Yeah. But um, it's just such a battle and you, you have to stay ahead of the curve because if you don't with equipment and all that, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty tough, you know? So in, in, Exactly. So this body, uh, is, the ALS is going through your body and it's going quickly. 
and, and staying ahead of the curve. This means renovation to home. Yeah. Uh, it means lifts. It means a motorized chair. It means all of this. Uh, financially, there's an impact. And, and emotionally and physically, there's an impact. How have you managed to stay ahead of the curve in all those regards? Well, you know what? It's, it's, uh, you, you try and reach out to other people that, that have had this and their families and trying to get some tips that way. But, you know, we've kind of, it's been trial and error. And, uh, um, you know, we've had to renovate the bathroom. See, luckily I have a walkout basement with uh, nine foot ceilings. So this level doesn't feel like you're downstairs at all. And we have ravine out the back, so it's pretty nice. But we had to renovate the bathroom. Yeah, because you have to, you have to have a shower commode mm -hmm. to wheel in, right? And, uh, you know, and on and on. But, but the biggest challenge has been when I had to give up the walker. Because about a month ago, I found that it was too dangerous to even walk with a walker. Mm -hmm. Like my legs are fried. There's no doubt about it. So, so to move from my office chair to the side of the bed, to the bathroom, whatever, they have what's called a Hoyer lift. And it's like a fishing rod. And, and you have a sling and it picks you up and it moves you over there. Um, which actually, to be honest with you, as, as crazy as it sounds, I enjoy it because it gives me a good stretch of my back when I'm up in the air. So you have to stay ahead of the curve equipment wise and mentally wise and what have you. I have a, I have a motor car cart that'll be here in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, I, my buddies came and built a ramp in the back. Um, you know, so, so for the most, I would say that we're, we're, um, we're caught up on this, but, but you know what, Henny, someone told me it's at least 200 K from the day you get diagnosed to the end. And I, I get it because mm -hmm. it adds up 25 here, 25 there. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. But, you know, at the end of the day, we were in pretty good shape um, as far as equipment goes and, and coping. So sports wise, uh, I grew up a CFL fan and, and I know Jim Cood, Larry Utech, Tony Proudfoot all passed away because of ALS. Do you think leagues, I'm not just talking the CFL, obviously, but leagues around the world, sports in general, can get involved to better help fund ALS? Are they doing enough right now? Well, do you know what? I, I really, yes, that's a great question. And and uh, that's one of my my goals is to, is to spread the word and awareness through the leagues and what have you. But um, finally, 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 Major League Baseball took a step forward uh, and, and designated June 2nd as Lou Gehrig Day uh, and gave uh, 30 MLB teams uh, a three-pillar mandate to follow. And boy, oh boy, that's a good start, right? So we're building like crazy for the 2nd of, of July, or sorry, June. But you know what? I, I spent an hour one day, quite a few months ago, listing all the athletes that I could find that had this and that are alive or passed away. I got up to 75 Henny in about an hour and a half. Wow. And, and you know what? Most of them were NFL football players. And one was very recent and you might know him, Steve McMichael. He was the anchor of the bears defense in 86. And I, if you want to watch a powerful uh, YouTube video, watch his. Yeah. because it's very powerful. There's a guy that was a warrior, right? And he's just been melted down. 
So I, I'm hoping that NFL football will be next and they will do something about this. And then maybe hockey will follow. But at the end of the day, Major League Baseball is the league that needed to be accountable because Lou Gehrig was one of them, right? So I think that uh, to answer your question, yes. I think the awareness is it's unprecedented times and uh, awareness is getting out there. And I think the leagues are going to start to follow suit. For sure. Is ALS research, do you think, Kurt's underfunded in Canada compared to what we've got in the United States? Is the system broken up here? It is. It is. It is underfunded. Uh, what's What the real problem is in Canada is actually there, there's one problem uh, in both sides of the border. And that's uh, when they do have a positive uh, uh, trial and there's a drug out there that needs approval, mm-hmm. the timeline's too long. Uh, to give you an idea, the one main treatment for ALS is called Adaravone, mm-hmm. and uh, it took two years to get it through uh, FDA over to Health Canada, uh, and then each province had to, to uh, look for approval. So two years is crazy when the lifelines are two to five years. So as far as, as, as the funding goes, yeah, I mean, there's 160 drug companies that are in the ALS space right now around the world. And there's about 80 trials that are going on phase one, two, and three. And then once you reach phase three, if it's all positive, that's when you put it in for approval. And there is some promising stuff going on, but uh, if there's three asks or three goals, one would be for faster pathways, the government to develop a system or a bill that allows a faster pathway to get the drugs into the ALS patients as soon as possible. And then the second ask would be for fundraising for, uh, for research. And the problem is Canada doesn't have a lot of trials. The U.S. has tons of them. We have to get some trials going in Canada at Sunnybrook and McMaster and what have you. So that needs to be done. But, uh, but faster pathways and research funds are, are the most important thing. And I think one of the problems, Henny, with, uh, with ALS and the reason why it's been 80 years is because let's look at the ice bucket challenge, for example. Those two guys that started that, they're not here anymore. They passed away, both of them. Um, any leader out there, uh, like the guy that leads IMALS in the States, uh, he's starting to really struggle. And what happens is these warrior leaders, they get weak and they die off. And then it's a restart. It's always a restart. It doesn't just keep going. And if they can find a cure for COVID and they can find a a vaccine for COVID and they can find solutions for HIV, Mm -hmm. well, if they put their mind to it, they can do it for this as well. And this is getting, there's 450,000 in the world that have this now and more and more I'm telling you it's it's starting to it's starting to spread so you had a recent you know, twitter posting from a young man named scott smith holding his newborn yeah. child and it's heartbreaking and you dared us all to watch the minute if you could and it wasn't easy and you responded to him as he's breaking down uh, looking into his beautiful child's eyes we all have our moments in the als prison will yourself onward scott 
And I'm wondering, Kurtz, is the discipline that enabled you beyond your obvious talent to be, as a hockey player, but to be a professional athlete, has it been a factor in your aggressive approach to ALS and, and doing what you're doing right now? Oh, 100% it is. Um, 100%. Because, especially with my career, because I was, what did I play? I don't even know, three, 300 up and 500 mm-hmm. in the American League. So I got sent down a lot. And when you get sent to the minors, it's a blow. I don't care what anybody says. Even if it's happened to you two or three or four times, every time it's a blow. But you know what? You turn around, you fight back, and you get back up top again. And so this is kind of similar. Yes, I agree. Because I was disciplined and I, and I did make it into pro hockey, there's no question that, that it's helped me mentally through this. No question. But, I mean, I get people that – I had an email yesterday uh, from a guy – it said, I ran relay with you in grade seven. Uh, and he said, I just got diagnosed and I'm scared to death. Can you help me? Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, you, you get these calls out of the blue. And, and I, I remember um, years ago, I remember Roger, Roger Nielsen, who had cancer, as you know, I remember him having a, um, we were, I was, I guess I was at his hockey school visiting him one summer and he had a list of about two pages full of names and phone numbers. And I said, what's that? He says, well, this is the list I have to call that the, all these people have cancer and I want to reach out to them and, and kind of build them up. So, so I'm finding myself into that a little bit. And uh, if I can help somebody get the proper utensil to feed themselves, yeah. uh, which I've done probably a dozen times, because uh, I've got these knife and fork that attaches to my hand so I can bring my hand up and eat no problem. And when I show that to an ALS guy that can't eat himself, I mean, can't uh, hold a utensil, you'd think he died and gone to heaven. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I'm always trying to reach out and uh, and help from that perspective. And uh, and the discipline, yeah, that's helped me get through this. No question. Well, no question. you've... You've mentioned hockey, at least I led you into it. You've mentioned Roger. Um, You were always a gifted goal scorer all the way through, but you were known as a 200-foot checking center. Did Roger have the greatest impact in convincing you to play that way, do you think, looking back in your career? Oh, yeah, for sure. As a matter of fact, I used to to, uh, bug Roger in the summer times a little bit. See, when I go back, I I lived uh, at Roger's cottage when I was 15, like Millsy did and uh, Greg Millen, and uh, we worked at his hockey school. Uh, and then he drafted me to Peterborough, drafted me to Toronto, and traded to me or traded for me in Vancouver. We actually named our oldest son after him, Henny. It's uh, Taylor Nielsen Curtin. So, uh, but Roger, yeah. Um, the reason why I would ride Roger a little bit is because in the American League, I was on the power play, and I get, you know, you get 60, 70 points. And then as soon as I get up to the NHL, his teams, I'm a checker. Yeah. So, but, but I think anybody that comes out of Peterborough is a 200 foot player because they go the four lines and uh, roll them over and you learn defense first, whether it's uh, Gary Green or Roger or Dick Todd or Keenan or whatever, it's all the same prototype in, in Peterborough. But um you know, the one year I did have a really, or two years, good offensive numbers was in Detroit when Roger wasn't there. So, uh, but at the end of the day, um, yes, Roger uh, to me was, uh, was like another father and, uh, 
and, and very helpful in my upbringing. And uh, yeah, I really uh, treasure that friendship. And I'm hoping in some way he's helping me. Those were great years. Uh, share, if you may, what it was like to share a farmhouse with Moose Basco's nephew, Rick, back in the well, day in Peterborough. I don't know how you knew that, but that was an interesting, uh, interesting time. We, uh, we lived with an 80-year-old grandmother, mm -hmm. and uh, Milsey and Glenn Wagner lived on the lower part of the farm. But uh, yeah, Rick was quite a prankster, and uh, so we, uh, we had some... Uh, very interesting uh, uh, days there. And he used to tease the heck out of the 80-year-old grandma. But you know what? She was like Maude, that TV series. Yeah. And she would just laugh and laugh and laugh. But uh, yeah, Rick, I haven't talked to Rick in a, Moose in a long time. I don't even know. He was a bush pilot for a while. I think he's, I think he's, in, he's a fire chief for something in Kingston. Well, he was a reporter there. He was a bush pilot, helicopter pilot, but I haven't talked to him in years. That's too bad because we did go to the same school. Hey, so. 1978, Peterborough Peets win the OHL championship. Take me back to those two series against the defending champion, Ottawa 67s, and then you go on to beat the Hamilton Fin Cups. And I mean, these series didn't all, they didn't, they went beyond the distance. They, they went four, three, and one because ties were yeah. included in both, but you guys managed to prevail in both. Oh, you know what? That was that was unreal. And I've talked to Bobby Smith, yeah. uh, who was the leader of the Ottawa team. And I've also talked to Al Secord, who was a leader of the Hamilton team. I talked to them quite often. And you know what? We, we all remember that year. Yeah. And uh, it was an amazing year. And, and it was crazy back then, too, because even in the playoffs, I remember playing Hamilton. And, of course, we'd in warm-up, you know, it's the old story. When your puck went down to the other end, which our puck went down to their end, so Jeff Brubaker, my winger, decides he's going down to get the puck. And, of course, Tim Coolis and Al Secord jump him. So then they, we come back into the dressing room, and I'm watching uh, Brubaker tape up his hands, but he's got a couple school rings underneath him, <laughs> and he's taping his hands up ready for the game. Yeah. But, I mean – those that was when Dale I was no, I guess Dale McCourt was gone from Hamilton, but it was uh, those were absolute pressure packed series. And uh, and when we won those and went on to the Memorial Cup, um, we, uh, you know, we, I think we were the favorites going into the Memorial Cup. And unfortunately, we didn't win it. Uh, we got beat by New Westminster. But as far as I'm concerned, those two series were the. Uh, we're the best. As a matter of fact, I, I said to Smitty, because we are, my line was always matched up against his line. And I had Keith Crowder and Brubaker against Payne, Higgins, and Smith. And I used to tell Smitty, I said, remember that last game? I said, uh, I think we, I don't know if we beat you or we tied you, but it was the one that clinched it. And I said, you, we couldn't get the puck out of our end for five minutes, the last five minutes. And I said, you and I had about 10 face-offs and I said, all I remember is I had to beat you twice. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, I beat you once and the puck would go, and then you'd reach right over top of me and I'd have to beat you again. And we just laughed. It was pretty funny. But they were great. The junior years, you can't beat those years. No. And the Mem, Cup, the Mem Cup, you did beat New Westminster twice, but Punch McLean had you guys number in that final game, 7-4 up in Sudbury. 
the draft goes in Montreal as it did all the time at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel. And, and I'm certain it's not like it was today where you go to the rink on a Friday night and you're there on the Saturday. What were you doing in 1978? Because you go in the third round to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, are you at home waiting for a phone call? Is that how it worked? You know, that's exactly how it worked. And uh, I remember being out in the front lawn. I was sitting in a lawn chair in my front lawn in agent court with a couple of buddies. And uh, the phone rang because it wasn't even broadcast on the radio or anything. No, the phone, the phone rang and it was um, Jim Gregory. It was Jim Gregory who said that uh, we drafted you. And then of course, Roger called about two minutes after that to warn me about the press. Cause he said, you know what? He says, they're going to, they're going to ask you some pointed questions because you know, our relationship and, you know, and what have you. So that, that was, he gave me, did give me the heads up on that, but you know what? I said to myself, I will not let Roger down. So I don't think I ever trained so hard in my life yeah. that summer. I mean, I wore the leaf Jersey in the, in the garage and I had a full gym and uh, I trained probably four or five hours a day and I uh, envisioned myself making it. And uh, because I knew that if I, if I, you know, wasn't in top condition, I'd be letting Raj down and putting him in a spot. Right. So it worked out really good. I mean, I, they were loaded at center, but uh, I ended up going to New Brunswick where Eddie Johnson was the coach and uh, he was fantastic. The team was great. I mean, it was a little wild down there. I, I called my dad after the third game and I said, uh, I said, you know what? We just played Portland, Maine three times in a row. Oh, and they were the uh, Broad Street Bully farm yeah. team. And I said, uh, you'll never believe what happened in game two. And he said, what? And I said, well, Rocky Sagnick challenged their bench <laughs> and they all jumped on. And guess who I had? And he says, who? I said, I had Frank Bathe. Oh. The guy with the big, long, red beard. Yeah. And he said, what did you do? And I said, well, I certainly didn't want to provoke him. So I said, I pushed him into the pile of guys beside the bench, and he let go. And then Eddie Johnson reached over and grabbed him and pinned him against the boards. And Pat Quinn came running around from Maine and jumped DJ. And so there they are, fighting at center ice, Henny, with their suits on, ripped both their suits down the back, they were sliding around and we all stopped to watch. And I've never seen anything like it uh, in, in my years, three games in a row against those guys. Yeah, yeah. So then fast forward, I run into Pat Quinn at, uh, at a media event in, uh, in, in, in Toronto. And I said, Hey, Pat, I said, uh, Mark Curtin, I don't know if you remember me or not, but um, I want to tell you a little story. Sure. Son. He's got the stogie in his hand. Yeah. And he says, uh, what's that? And I said, well, I was trying to call Gord Stellick in the Fan 590 because they had hockey's best fights, but I couldn't get through. And he said, well, which fight do you think was the best? And I said, it was 1978, you and EJ at center ice, Moncton Coliseum. And he, and he looks at me yeah. and he has a little grin oh, yeah. and he goes, that was really something, wasn't it, son? Oh, yeah. And of course, his wife just shakes her head. It was really funny, but it wasn't funny to play there, playing that game. I can tell you that. You've uh, you've mentioned Gabby and Roger, and I remember Gabby telling me on this podcast that 
Roger didn't speak to him, I think, for three months, even on a bus when they were seated one in front of the other. Roger would talk to whoever Gabby was with, but he wouldn't talk to Gabby. And Gabby thinks this just dated back to the rivalry that was the Marleys and the Peets. And Roger, he held on to a grudge. You know, I I, I don't think so, honestly. No. no, I don't think so. I think if Gabby was here, I'd tell him that too. Um, Roger, in some ways, what's the politest way to say this? Sometimes he, he's not aloof at all. But sometimes he would be reserved. Is that a better word? I guess reserved. And, uh, you know, and, and unless she, sometimes it was hard to get to know Roger. Like once you knew him well, right, then, then you had no issue. But if you didn't know him real well, sometimes you would feel like Gabby felt. Because mm-hmm. I've heard that before. But, uh, uh, yeah, Gabby, Gabby probably should have got out of the Toronto system. Yeah. Right. And then and then he might have had a go because sometimes that's what happened to me. I got out of there and got to Detroit and and it gives you a new lease on life. Right. So that's probably what he what he should have done. 1981, uh, you're in the Montreal Forum and you give your old junior teammate Woody Acton a poke from behind and all of a sudden hell breaks loose and you end up engaged with Guy Lapointe. A future yeah, yeah. Hall of Famer. I mean, Guy's not a little man, but you were in the middle of oh. it and you didn't back off. You were like honey yeah. badger. Oh, it was funny. And I know. I mean, I probably had eight fights in my whole career. But um, yeah, I remember that one. And I just bumped Woody just lightly. Mm-hmm. He went nuts. But it, uh, I'll go a better one than that. I remember uh, in Vancouver, Tiger Williams was my winner in Vancouver all year. We played Calgary in the playoffs. And Tiger said to me, you haven't been in an NHL playoff yet, have you? I said, no. He says, we didn't make it in Detroit. And he goes, well, I'm going to warn you. The pace picks up. It's about 10 times as fast. Mm-hmm. I'm going, there's no way. It can't be that fast. Uh, so sure enough, I'm facing off against Riseboro. And we're starting the game. Mm-hmm. Riseboro must have whacked me five times hard with his stick. And that it was about a minute and a half shift. And then I realized this was a whole different ball game in the playoffs. Everybody's playing for keeps. And Riseboro and I had a, so I, I dropped my gloves with Riseboro and um, Howie Meeker was doing the, uh, the color. And I've seen this clip afterwards. Riseboro was throwing them and I flipped them over my hip and I landed on him. And Howie was going nuts. Oh, Curtin, he's not known for his fisticuffs, but look how he handled Riseboro. It was really funny. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know what? When you got wingers like Tiger and Brew Baker and Ron DeLorme and all that, you just play hockey. Let them do that stuff. Right? In Vancouver, you play for two dynamic coaches in Bill LaForge, the late Bill LaForge and Harry Neal. Do you oh. remember these two as being unique in terms of communicators? What What do you recall from both? They were uh, Harry oh, yeah. was a colleague of mine. I certainly knew Bill when he coached junior in, in Hamilton and Niagara Falls. You know what? I'll never forget it because I started that year in, uh, in Fredericton and Harry called me up or what Bill was still coaching early in the season. And I remember the first game in Minnesota or against Minnesota in Vancouver. And there was a Minnesota effigy or whatever you call it, what I, yeah. with a sweater on hanging in our dressing room. And each guy had to stop for 15 seconds and start punching it. So imagine that. 20 guys or whatever 
stopping to punch this thing like Schnepsey and Thomas Gradine and all these guys, Sundstrom. And so you'd punch for 15 seconds while everybody yelled and then out you'd go and onto the ice. Yeah. And I thought, man, this is strange. So we play the game. Then the next day we go play in Minnesota and he comes in the dressing room and he says, okay, all five guys are going to fight. As soon as the pucks dropped, all five guys dropped their gloves. And I remember Gary Lupo being smaller than me, opposite Willie Platt. Okay. And I'm going, I'm sitting on the bench going, this isn't going to be pretty. And then all of a sudden I see uh, Ron DeLorme go over and he goes, Hey Lupe, you go on the other side. So it was Ron DeLorme against Willie Platt. Sure enough, gloves dropped. Everybody went at it, all five guys. I think Harry realized that, you know, I forget what game he fired Bill LaForge, but I think he realized that this, it's just not right. So then Harry came down behind the bench and he played me a ton. I got, I loved it. It was great. And, uh, but Harry, uh, Harry's a very funny guy behind the bench. And uh, I really enjoyed that year. That was one of my favorite years, actually. I think of Tom Watt, he said, uh, most people when they jog, 95% of people when they jog think of sex. Tom Watt thinks of jogging when he's having sex. Yeah, I can see that's <laughs> funny. You know, Harry's hilarious. He is. Yeah, he's got some great, uh, great lines. Hey, yeah, that was a fun year. Before we let you, tell, tell me about the yep. line and how well it communicated. Uh, in my years covering hockey, and especially Detroit, Paul Woods was always a pleasure to talk with, so knowledgeable. And, of course, you played with Motor City Smitty as well. You were talking about how well things gelled offensively for you there then. Those two guys obviously had a great deal to do with it, and, and, and Smitty obviously uh, provided a lot of room for you and Woodsy. Yeah, yeah, that was fun too. We, uh, As a matter of fact, I don't know if it's in the – in the Detroit uh, uh, record book, but I think we scored five, mm-hmm. so five home games in a row. I think we scored first shift, which is kind of funny because Maxner would put us out there first shift. But uh, yeah, Paul Woods is just a sweetheart of a guy. And we live four houses over from each other up, uh, up near Pontiac. And, uh, um, you know, we went everywhere together. We killed penalties together on the same line and what have you, but motor city, uh, well, you know Motor City well, and uh, yeah, he uh, he actually uh, um, was was a pleasure to play with as well. Uh, he did open up some space for Woody and I, no question. But uh, but just a super guy that uh, would always have your back, you know. Yeah, I liked uh, Smitty. Let me wrap things up with this, and it's uh, it's a tribute to you, obviously. And June is ALS Awareness Month. And June 20th will be the walk to end ALS. Please go online and register. Research will lead to drugs and clinical trials and eventually lead, we hope, to longer and better lives for those afflicted with the disease. Kurt, you've always said there is no negativity in your DNA. I applaud your vigor and pray for you, Lisa, Taylor, Adam, and Sarah, and your ongoing quest for a healthier future. Thanks so much for this conversation today. I appreciate that, Henny, and thank you for having me. Uh, it's just another opportunity to get the awareness out there. And uh, like I said, I, I don't know how the timelines will play out for me. Um, all I can do is try and capture every moment. And uh, I am so impressed by, I, I already knew I had an amazing family that, mm-hmm. that would support me. But I'll tell you, I am so impressed 
by the by former teammates, the hockey fraternity, and the media, who have really stepped up and uh, had my back. So I'm I'm very proud of that. Um, and uh, all I can do is keep pushing forward and uh, hope we can have a real good breakthrough through June. And like I said, the awareness is is June 2nd, and then it leads to the donation fundraising of uh, of June 20. Ballistic Sports will be launching a Kickstarter campaign featuring a new line of interactive sports board games. For more information, follow Ballistic Sports on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.